0: Good morning, Kings. Yeah, you hear me? Can you hear me? Okay. <clears throat> I'm gonna. Uh, it's a real privilege to be here this morning to serve, to serve you really in uh, in reading and in, in preaching um, from from God's word. So I'm gonna go ahead and uh, open the word. If you have it with you, if you, have your Bible with you. Please open to John chapter five, the Gospel according to John. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna read um, for us the passage this morning, and then I'll. Uh, I'll dismiss the kids to, uh, to children's church. So please um, hear the word of the Lord this morning from John chapter 5, starting at verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years, and when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there for a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps, steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus, Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. Thanks be to God for the, uh, for his word and the reading of his word this morning. May he bless us in the study of it as well. <clears throat> Go ahead, and uh, children, you are dismissed to, to your uh, your classes. We're thankful for the teachers and the helpers, really, who, who also get a chance to... Uh, to just soften the hearts of our children toward the gospel by uh, by teaching them from the Word of God as well, so pray for them as well, please. So this morning we're continuing our our trek, our study for the Gospel according to John, the Invisible made visible. And John, if you remember, was one of Jesus' disciples, right? He was a he had followed Jesus in his life in ministry, um, and he wrote his book. This book, as, as an eyewitness to and first, someone who had first hand knowledge about Jesus' teachings, uh, his signs and his miracles, uh, and, and, and ultimately uh, about his crucifixion and his resurrection. So he opens his account uh, in, in, in chapter one, just making it very clear as to who Jesus is. You know, he doesn't keep us in suspense. He says, Jesus is God, right? He says, Jesus is the eternally existing God who is the very source of all living things, right? He's the creator of the universe and all that's, that's in the universe. And by his spoken word, he actually uh, spoke the world into existence. It leapt forth, as it says in Genesis chapter one, as, uh, as it records. And from eternity, from eternity past, Jesus was with God the Father. He was, he was with God the Holy Spirit in perfect loving relationship. And then John goes on to, in verse fourteen of the first chapter, to say that Jesus became flesh; that he, that Jesus eternally exists in God, put on flesh. He became a human being, and though he was made in the image of God, God is also so much unlike us. You know, so he he is—he's not—he's without physical form. So this was a big thing that Jesus humbled himself by coming in physical form. He left the riches of heaven, coming to earth as a human being, and just as we, and we just celebrated this event, you know, the, it's called the Incarnation, we celebrated it in Christmas. I got a Christmas card this, uh, this year from my, my brother Michael, um, who he, he, he um, taped inside the cover, this, this statement, the word did not become a philosophy, a theory, or a concept to be discussed, debated, or pondered, but the word became a person to be followed, enjoyed, and loved. So in case you didn't catch it, that's the why of the incarnation. That's why Jesus came. He came to be followed. He came to be enjoyed and loved. He came, Jesus came into uh, this dark world that's that suffering the de- destructive effects of sin and he came with the healing power of, the, of God's light. And this is why um, he says in, in uh, John 3, 16, which is probably one of the most familiar, familiar uh, verses in the Bible: um, "For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. But he also goes on to say, "For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than light because their works were evil. So we, while we typically stop at verse 16, it's really important that we understand the whole context of what Jesus is saying in that, in that paragraph. You know, he, uh, it, to understand the thrust of what's being communicated in verse 16, it's important to know that, that God showed his love to the world, but that sin also must be dealt with. That God's love and compassion toward sinful human, human beings is inextricably connected to his intense hatred for sin. In order for us to be brought to life, for us to have healing, he must obliterate sin. Right? Sin that has so enslaved us and has entangled our hearts so that we would rather stay in darkness rather than being exposed to God's healing light. <clears throat> so that's really what our text is about this morning. Jesus shows compassion to a man by healing him from years of paralysis, but Jesus shows him the real depth, the real extent of God's love, because he shows him grace and mercy by calling him to leave his sin and calling him to believe in Him. So we're going to look at the book this uh, this chapter this morning, Gospel according to John, chapter five, uh, under three headings: um, the cure, the controversy and then the confrontation. So the cure, the controversy, and then the, the, uh, the confrontation. So let's first look at the cure, verses one through nine. Starting in verse one. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So John begins this chapter by saying that there's some time has lapsed between uh, the end of chapter four, when he heals the official's son, uh, and, and, his, uh, and this opening to chapter, chapter five. Um, He doesn't really specify how much time has gone by. We don't really know. It could have been up to a year, maybe a year and a half um, between these two events that are taking place. But what we do know is Jesus has traveled from wherever he was now to Jerusalem for one of the the feasts. And again, there's no specificity here. We don't really know what what that feast is. It it could have been been any number of feasts. Um, It might have been the Feast of the Passover or Pentecost, maybe even the Feast of the Tabernacles. The reason it could have been probably one of those three is because of those three, uh, all Jewish males were, were mandated to come to Jerusalem for those. But it doesn't have to be one of those. It could have been any of them. Um, but either way, um, he's there. Uh, commentators are, d- are divided. It's interesting because even though John doesn't tell us what feast it is here, it does. he does tell us um, in chapter 6 and in chapter 7 some specific details. Um, uh, uh, feast. The Passover is mentioned in 6. The Feast of the Booths is mentioned in chapter 7. But here we're just kind of left to wonder. The reason I think is just that it's not important. And uh, not, It's not really important part of the, uh, a, a detail that needs to be really considered. But what's really important is that Jesus is here, right? That Jesus is here as, a, as one of the uh, devout Jews of his day. He's traveled to Jerusalem. He's traveled here for one of the feasts. Um, but interestingly, he's not here... He's not amongst the crowds of people who are, who are feasting. They're not among the crowds who are at the temple maybe celebrating and worshiping. Instead, we find him in a, with a very different crowd of people. He's not even with his disciples. The disciples are not even named here. So he's, he's walked by himself possibly to this pool called the Pool of Bethesda. And John even goes so far as to say exactly where this pool is located. It's located by the Sheep Gate. So if you were with us during our study through Ezra and Nehemiah during the summer, you know, that might that might uh, kind of ring in your ears, uh, the Sheep Gate. It was actually part of the surrounding walls of Jerusalem. And if, uh, I won't go into a lot of detail, but if you remember just basically uh, what happened there is that the Jews had been enslaved and, and they were under, under captivity uh, under the Babylonians for some 70 years. And then finally, at the end of these 70 years, uh, as God had prophesied, uh, they were, their enslavement was, was lifted. And this king of Persia actually gave the Jews' permission to go back to their homeland; they go to go back to, to to Jerusalem, and he actually paid for their not only for them to go, but he fa- paid out of his coffers for them to actually build the wall. So he he financed this this building effort. And so, um, so that's th- so. If you want to hear more about that, it's it's great. Uh, check check out on our on our website the uh, the Gospel according to Ezra and Nehemiah. So. But one thing I want to point out about that, the reason I, I bring that up about the Sheep Gate is because I, I just want to get you some, some understanding about what's, what was kind of going on about 450 years earlier prior to this event in chapter 5. <clears throat> is that this area, the Sheep Gate, and maybe around this pool area, was at one point a hot spot for worship, for celebration. Uh, when the project of, uh, was finished, completing this wall, building the wall, uh, they were consecrated by the priests and then we hear that there's this, there's this a procession of, of, of choirs that's singing in worship that's actually atop these walls and they're, and they're proceeding around the walls and marching over them, even over the gates, including the sheep gate here. So uh, Nehemiah chapter 12 says this. The other choir, those who gave thanks, uh, who gave thanks went to the north, kind of where we're at here, north of Jerusalem, and I followed them with half of the people on the wall above the tower of the ovens To the broad wall, and above the gate gate of Ephraim, and above the gate of Yeshana, and by the fish gate, and the tower of Hananel, and the tower of the hundred, to the sheep gate. And they came to halt at the gate of the guard, and they offered great sacrifices that day, and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. So the sheep gate. And in the surrounding area had this history, this history of singing and celebration and God-centered worship and sacrifice. And and this is where the temple was near this area, where it's located, where God had actually was meeting with His people, right, at the temple, and they were and the sacrifices were being offered here. So this you could almost call this area really the worship district of Jerusalem in a sense. So so contrast that that imagery of singing, rejoicing, and, and worship. With now, what's going on with our scene this morning, in in the very shadows of the scene, we see this pool, the pool of Bethesda, which has a very different atmosphere. um, Again, verse 2, let me read verse 2 through 8. Now, there was in Jerusalem that by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which had five roofed colonnades. And these lay a multitude of invalids, blind and lame and paralyzed. One man had been there for 38 years, so depending on your translation, uh, the pool is either called Bethesda or Bethsaida. You know, uh, both of them are, are, are used in, in some of the early manuscripts, but it's, it's quite possibly um, Bethesda is the, is, is the real name of, of the, uh, the pool here because that's really in the earliest manuscripts we have It's called that. And, and translated, Bethesda actually means the house of twin outpourings. And the reason for this is actually, and, and uh, archaeological evidence has kind of showed us this is that there, there are actually two pools here together, and uh, so they're in fe- they're feeding one another. So there's the, the the twin outpourings are going on here. So and so now we see that the pools here are covered in colonnades, kind of like well, kind of like these ones that are staying behind, that are behind me. These are colonnades, but instead this one had a roof over it, and it was this roof that was sheltering the people, the pool, and also the people that would be underneath the pool from. The scorching heat, maybe from rain like we had this morning, um, so it was to kind of keep the weather out. Um, so, but instead of finding here under sh- in the shelter a bunch of people lounging around, maybe like at a resort, that kind of thing, we instead we find uh, the place is packed with with all these these people with various disabilities uh, and, and ailments, uh, and they're all huddled huddled together under under the pool. But um, so the question is. Why this pool, right? Why would, why this particular, why would these people with disabilities all these, and all these animals be at this particular location? Well Let's look at verse 4, and it will kind of answer our question and give us a little bit of help. Uh, wait, where's verse 4? Oh, it's in the Bible. Okay, yeah. So your Bible might not have a verse four in it, or if it does, there might be a little subscript that tells you that there was a that there was a verse four here. Well, here's what it would read if it was if it was there. Waiting for the moving of the water, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool, and stirred the water, and whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was was healed of the diseases that he had. So, <clears throat> the reason that this note's here. Uh, is be, in, in here and not actually maybe the verse 4 in, in among uh, between 3 and 5 is uh, why it's kind of hanging out here is because it's possible that it, it w- was not included in some of the early manuscripts that we have, the earliest that we have of the biblical canon. <coughs> um, but what it does, it was probably added later on, but what it does do, it, it kind of gives us um, a little bit of an answer uh, as to what maybe is going on here, why this is a possible hangout place um, it's, apparently, it's believed that there were some, as we just read, there's some curative powers in the water. And, uh, and that it was likely due, this was really uh, maybe produced by a spring that was underneath the pools. I mean, archaeology has shown us that as well. That there might have been some uh, spring that was feeding into here and it was kind of causing it to bubble up. And, 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 and that was what the stirring is referring to. Uh, but the legend is that, that an actual angel would come down, right, and stir the water, and then whoever was first in got, got healed. And that's, that's the legend, at least. So th- this note is helpful. kind of gives a little bit of context. Uh, it seems to be true historically. Um, but but what's what's good about this is that why we can almost kind of leave it behind in some sense is because it's not really uh, it's not really necessary uh, it's, the, the the passage itself is not de- is not dependent upon this verse being here or not uh, what what this what it's really about what the main thrust of this of this this uh, this passage that we're looking at today is not about the the legend of the, of the water it's about the main focus on Jesus. Right, that Jesus is the main character. He is Jesus is God, and Jesus alone has the, the power, possesses the power, to heal the human body and the soul, and in the human soul as well. So picture this: right, it's feast time in Jerusalem. There's a lot of people, crowds of people coming in. You know, Jesus is among all these people uh, that are surrounding this uh, this worship district. There's a lot of people probably right now at the temple at, this, at the time this is taking place, and then just a few blocks away from the temple, and what's going on there is a whole different crowd of people. Right? People who are suffering, you know, in misery from incurable disabilities. Some of them maybe were lifelong disabilities. Some of them maybe were kind of fresh, uh, so they were new, new, recent um, uh, ailments or recent um, things that had happened to them. So they're all lying around this pool, and, and they're and they're. It supposedly has some curative properties to it and power that they're, they're placing their hopes in. And, there's, it's, and think of this too. It's crowded and there's no public bathrooms at this time, right? And unless they had some help getting somewhere, I'll leave it to your imagination. So it's, pretty, it's probably really smelly, putrid smelling there. So get that. Get that picture. And then amongst this, in this this situation, this scene, this scene we have Jesus walking in, Right? in this place of desperation and misery and hopelessness and superstition, Jesus walks in. And so think about that for a moment, right? Isn't that just like Jesus, right? For him to, to, to make his way to the lowliest of places among the people who, are, who need his grace most? Isn't that, isn't, that, uh, isn't that just like our Savior to do that? Well, let's continue to, uh, to verse 5. One man who was there had been an in invalid for 38 years, when Jesus saw him lying there, knew that he had already been there for a long time. He said to him, "Do you want to be healed?" And the man, sick man, answered him, "Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another you know, steps in before me." <clears throat> so we're not really given much about what the. What the, the disability is here that this man's going through that, that he's suffering from? We don't have a detailed diagnosis of what's happening, but what we do know clearly is that it's utterly debilitating. Right? He can't he can't get up. He can't get to the pool. He's been he's been paralyzed. We know for 38 years. Can you imagine that? I don't want to make anybody here in the room feel old, but that's longer than I've been alive. You know, what I mean, so <laughs> I mean, so this is a long time. You know, he's he's been in this in this state for, and he's not getting any better, right? There's there's no wheelchairs to get him around. There's there's no physical therapy that's going to help him. And there's no prosthetics that's, that are going to aid him. Instead, he's got the only thing that he can that he has to support him in his situation, and that's the he's pinning his hopes on this one superstition, right? This this local superstition, and and what's interesting is that he's got a hold of this and yet he's in Jerusalem, right? Among the people of God, the, the people that God had called to himself to be his people, the people that, he, that his Shekinah glory was, was, was shown and was, and was among in the temple that he had, he had called to himself, the, 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 the city that was supposed to be the light on the hill to, the, to all the nations and yet he's got, his, he's pinned all of his hopes instead on this fairy tale that he's got. So look at verse six now. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been healed, that he had been there for a long time, he said, do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered, sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going down, another uh, steps down before me. So Jesus says, approaches the man. Right? This man's not going anywhere. We know that. So Jesus instead approaches him and he doesn't speak to the entire crowd. He just goes to this one man. It's this one paralytic and here, I think it's important to, to point out what I think what, uh, what John is, wants us to know. He wants us to get a glimpse at God's sovereign grace and in the, in, in the, in just his approaching of this man. He chooses a man not based on anything that he's done, that man has done or that he's earned, but it's s- strictly by God's sovereign grace that he approaches him. And it says that, Jesus immediately knows what's going on. He knows all there is to know about this guy. He knows that he's been in this condition for thirty-eight years. So there's something very supernatural going on even before Jesus utters a word to this man. You know, we get a glimpse into his sovereign grace. We get a glimpse into his omniscience, his all-knowing power. Right is being displayed right in this text. Right even before he says anything. But what's interesting is that even though that Jesus is God in the flesh, he came in the flesh. Uh, and he knows everything that there is a, to know about this man. He still asks him a question. He still says, "Do you want to be healed, right?" So, why would Jesus even ask anything at all? If he already knew everything, he, kn- he knew his condition. Why didn't he just heal the man? Right? Why didn't he just? Why do you even to ask this particular question, right? I mean, it might, it might have even been a little off-putting to this man. You know, you know. Of course, I want to be healed. Why are you asking this question? But uh, John MacArthur, I think, has some great insight as I was doing my study. Uh, I read this. He says, quote, "The Lord's question seems strange. Obviously, obviously, the man wanted to be cured, and he would not have, or else he wouldn't have been by the pool in the first place, right? But Jesus never engaged in flippant, idle conversation. His question served several purposes. One, it secured the man's full attention, and it, then it focused on his need, offered him healing. And communicated to him the depths of Christ's love and concern. But the man failed to grasp the weight of Jesus' offer. Quote. So some commentaries actually think that, that this man uh, didn't even really want to be healed at all. And that's kind of what the, what the driving point behind Jesus' question was. Is, is to make him see that, you know, do you even really want to be healed? Um, this guy, uh, is, is, he might have been bitter and rude uh, maybe crude and very unlikable character. Maybe that's why he didn't have anybody here to help him get into the pool in the first place, um, and so maybe his so then maybe his answer to Jesus is just uh, some kind of manipulative plea to try to get him to pick him up and putting him into the water. See, that's that's one I, that's one way that that uh, that he he could have been responding, and that what's going on with the man. And other others um, commentators think that the man was actually. Very different. He was very. He was diff- He was desperate in his dependency. You know, similar to the man uh, that we read about in chapter four, whose son was about to die, and he was he was just in, in in desperation. He had nowhere to turn for hope, and so instead he clings clings to the superstition. So we we do know that much is clear: is that he is he's still latched on and clasping on to that fairy tale that he's bought into. I think it actually could have been. I don't think either or. It might have been a little bit of both. I mean, I think there's there's not necessarily. Um, he could have been both bitter and, and at the same time uh, desperate. I don't, think, I don't think they're mutually exclusive. Uh, maybe that's the reason why he, he continues to go to the pool year after year. And think about it. I mean, he's returning all this time. He's never seeing anybody healed, uh, really. Um, he's never made it in. And I think this all adds to his this feelings of hopelessness and despair. And then what happens is eventually, maybe this, after years of, of going through this, his hopes, are just dashed, right? And he becomes he becomes bitter, maybe even to the point where he's blaming other people for his suffering um, that he's going through. But either way, Jesus is telling the man uh, exactly the same thing that, he's, that he was telling Nicodemus earlier in chapter 3 and when he was telling the Samaritan woman in chapter 4, uh, that he alone can satisfy this man's deepest need and he can only he can satisfy the restless pursuit of his heart. I mean, so that's what's being communicated in this conversation, in, in, the, in the question. That's exactly why Jesus heals this man. So in verse 8, you read, Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once, at once the man was healed. And he took up his bed and he walked. So think uh, 38 years of atrophy has, have gone through and all this de- degradation that's going on in this man's body and it's cured in an instant, right? Not over the course of several months, not, all, not with proper exercise, uh, maybe diet and physical therapy, not even, even in a matter of minutes, but it's complete healing by a single command of Jesus uh, that comes from Jesus and in an instant he's healed. And notice also the, the, the order of events, right? Jesus speaks it, he initiates the healing, he speaks the healing, and it happens, right? Without any need on the man's part, without any effort on the man's part. And only after the healing was secured, that Jesus secured his healing by, his, by the word of his power, it was only then that the man obeyed and he took up this, his mat and he walked. So, the, so again, the man's healing had nothing to do, with no, no, no required effort on his part. So I think the same thing can be said about Salvation. Salvation itself is not based on any merits of our own or how we can persuade God to give us favor. Instead, salvation is rooted solely on God's grace and his grace alone. So, in just as this man, we're paralyzed, paralyzed by sin. Actually, much worse than that, we're actually dead in our sins, dead in our trespasses, and yet God still approaches us, doesn't he? And he breathes, Life into our hearts, Ephesians two four through nine. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses in our sins, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up, uh, raised us up with Him and seated us with Him, with Jesus, in the heavenly places, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and is not by your own doing. It is the gift of God, not of any works, so that no one may boast. So that's, that's something <clears throat> that, that uh, the relig- religious leaders, unfortunately, didn't understand in, God's, in, in Jesus' day. So let me, uh, let me move that, that kind of segue into my next point, which is the controversy. It's not going over. All right, We're we're, at the controversy. Uh, Verse 9b through 13, starting with verse 9. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. So the plot thickens, right? right? We find that not only did the healing take place during feast time, during a festival time in Jerusalem, but it actually also happened on the Sabbath. And the Jews here that, that uh, John's referring to were actually the religious leaders. They were probably the Pharisees. They were the social and religious elite at, you know, during that day, and they held a very powerful presence in, in Jerusalem at the time. And, um, so this man catches their attention, because he's seen carrying his bed, he's seen carrying this, and the man's bed, by the way, wasn't like a bed like like what we sleep in nowadays. It was more of a mat that was made of straw that could just be you know uh, rolled up and then easily carried on your shoulders. This is what he's doing. He just he's got this rolled up on his shoulder and he's walking uh, after being healed after thirty years of misery. He's he's being healed and then he's got to deal with this for the Pharisees, right? So the Pharisees notice the man's and they confront him, and with one of their religious laws, and he says, which is. No carrying anything on the Sabbath. Don't carry stuff on the Sabbath day. Uh, actually, the law itself was much broader than that. It was, um, wasn't just your map, but don't carry anything on the Sabbath because this, that was considered work and you're not supposed to do any work on the Sabbath. Uh, as the fourth commandment states, don't do any work on the seventh day of the week, which is Saturday. So this is a Saturday. Uh, this was the, one of the original commands that God gave to his people, gave to Israel. It was interesting because uh, and I was reading it, that... Um, that these, the laws that were given to the people of the day uh, that were given to Moses um, earlier um, were actually etched by the finger of God and given to them. So, uh, and this is what it says: uh, the fourth command that was etched on, on the uh, the tablets. There, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day that day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do no work, you, your son, or your daughter. Your, mer- your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, God blessed the, seventh, the Sabbath day and made it holy. So, so, here we read the Sabbath day was actually given uh, in context to give God's people the gift of rest. Is not only is it a day just to refrain from any work, but it's a reminder of of God's work, that God's creative work when He created the earth. Uh, for in six days it says in Genesis one, uh, in Genesis one and two that He fashioned the universe. Right? He created all. The, he created the earth that we have today. He's, he created the, the earth, the land, the sea, the animals, uh, the plants, everything that, that, that we see on the earth. And then, at the very end, He created man, right? The the crowning jewel. Of God's creative uh, creative work, and so then God called this this day. He called his 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 uh, uh, his work good, and then he rested on the seventh day. And so, because these commands were actually given by God himself, uh, the Pharisees, you know, uh, admirably it seems, held held them in high esteem. Right, they held these laws in high esteem. But the problem was with with the Pharisees is that. They held the law in higher esteem than they held the lawgiver. Right? So that's the problem. And so, in their efforts to keep the letter of the law, what they were actually doing was they had lost the principle behind God's command and actually broke the first law, which is uh, to worship, exalt, and to love and to find their joy and rest in God Himself. Instead, they went berserk and started creating their own sets of laws, their own standards that they thought was gonna be able to purchase their holiness, that that's what's gonna give them right standing in favor with God, right? And not to mention, it was gonna earn them high praise from everybody else in the meantime too, right? So, <clears throat> so that's, there's a little insight as to what was going on. Um, earlier this week, I, I read this tweet from, uh, yeah, I'm on Twitter, um, hashtag Uh Pastor Tim Keller, he, uh, he tweeted this, which I think perfectly sums up um, what the Pharisees had done with God's law. Said careful obedience to God's law often serves as a strategy for rebelling for rebelling against God. Let me read that again. Careful obedience to God's law often serves as a strategy for rebelling against God. End quote. So what he's not saying here is that if you try following God's law, that obeying God's laws is rebellion, and it's therefore sin. He's not saying that. He's not saying that at all. What he's saying, what Tim Keller's suggesting here is that God's own laws, even God's own laws that he had given for his people can be used themselves as instruments for rebellion against God. So what the Pharisees had done is that they had deceived themselves into thinking that they could create the perfect system for obeying God, right? But what they had actually done was create a playbook for their own self-righteous rebellion. That's That's what they had done. And they were teaching others to play by the same set of rules. They had literally devised their own set of laws and they had actually categorized them into nice, uh, neat, 39 different classes of of laws. And guess what the 39th law was? No carrying anything on the Sabbath, right? So they had created their own recipe for self-righteousness using two ingredients. One was they were using God's law that had been given, but and then, then they were taking their own laws. And they were actually they were superimposing their laws over God's laws. And then they took these and they imposed them on, on the rest of the on the rest of the nation. So what's going on? That's that's what's kind of what's going on here to give you a little context is what's happening when they're confronting this man. They they were angry because they were not play, he was not playing by their rules. You know, by their, he were, they were not playing by their laws. Not God's laws. He hadn't broken any God's laws, but he had broken their laws. Because you'll find nowhere in the Old Testament where it says you can't carry your mat on the Sabbath day, just to make it clear. that's not, that's not You're not going to find that anywhere. But th- what they were telling this man, really, was that uh, yeah, you can't carry that, it's work, and you can't work today because it's a Sabbath, so you're sinning. That's kind of what, he's, what, they're, that's what they're saying in a nutshell. So, the man's response, though, it's interesting, uh, he, he, he shows kind of what kind of person he is um, by what he says. He's pretty much saying, it's not my fault. I'm only the one who was, that, was, that was healed. You know, I'm carrying just because this other guy told me to do it. The guy who healed me, that's the guy who told me to do it. I'm just, so he's trying to place the blame over to Jesus, right? And, uh, the sin that he had done, quote-unquote sin, which is not sin at all, he's passing it off onto Jesus, to this guy who doesn't even, he doesn't actually know Jesus' name at this point, which is weird, Right? I mean, you think that th- that would be the number one thing you'd want to find out is the person who healed you from being paralyzed for 39 years, 38 years, uh, you'd want to find out what his name was, right? But he doesn't do that here. You know, it could be maybe just, you know, it says that Jesus was, was being crowded. The crowds were, were coming at him. Uh, maybe those, maybe outside the colonnades now, outside the pool area, had heard about it and they were coming in, so th- the crowd's ballooning. Or maybe the crowd that's already there are just, are just, you know, encroaching in on him. We don't know, but he bolts because of that. And um, so, uh, so maybe that's the reason why the man didn't get his name. But, but he doesn't actually go out of his way to find out who it is either, right? So, so uh, uh, he doesn't go out of his way to find who Jesus is. So notice here, though, that the Jewish leaders, they aren't at all fazed by the fact that, that, that this man was even healed. Uh, they didn't, that didn't change their perspective at all. The people who you think would have been the most ecstatic about this Right, the religious people of the day who knew the word of God, they hear they hear about this miracle, and instead they're antagonistic, right? Rather than rejoicing, so rather than rejoice, they create this this at, where this uh and create this atmosphere of worship, reinstitute this 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 worship in the worship district. Instead, uh, they're scolding this guy for being healed, for, for holding on to this mat that he's carrying, and so they're reflexing their their religious muscle their religious muscles. And they're demanding to know who the healer was. They're demanding Who's the one who told you to carry the, the, uh, your bed on the Sabbath? As we know, that man is Jesus. But let's, let's, uh, let's move on now to the next, um, my next point, the confrontation. Um, so after this uh, interaction with the Pharisees, the man makes his way to the temple. That's what we know, We it reads. And there Jesus finds him. Jesus finds the man. Same way that he approached him before, now Jesus is now approaching the man again a second time. And for all we know, this man was probably done with Jesus. You know, he had had his healing, you know, he had moved on, he was now mobilized in his effort to, to continue moving along with his life, whatever his lifestyle was, but uh, Jesus wasn't done with him. Jesus isn't content to heal the man's body and then just walk away. His mission actually is to attack the source of the man's problem. Which is, which is sin, the sin in his heart. Verse 14, afterward, Jesus found him, this man in the temple, and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. This man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. So do you hear a little bit of the irony in Jesus' voice here? Uh, he says, look, you're all better, but yet you're still sick and feverish with sin in your heart. You know, stop sinning so nothing worse can happen to you. See the, see the little irony going on that you're well, but yet you're still not well. So just as Jesus earlier was drawing on the man's physical situation, drawing his attention to his disability, now what Jesus is doing is he's drawing the man's attention to his, to his sin. And this time the man, uh, he's telling this man that all along, the real problem, the source of his problem all along was just the rebellion in his heart. his paralysis, was just merely uh, was merely pointing to the underlying problem, which is the sad state of this man's soul, the sin in his soul. The most natural reading of this verse is that, uh, that the man's prior condition, his, his paralysis was actually a direct result of his sin. And so and that's why Jesus is saying, he's telling him that if, you, if your pattern in sin continues, if you keep on sinning, something worse awaits him. Something worse awaits him. The immediate context is, Your sinning is leading you toward worse consequences physically, uh, worse than what you had gone through in the 38 years prior to your healing. Jesus doesn't say what that is. Uh, It's hard to imagine what could have been worse than 38 years of prowess, but what he's saying is, in the immediate context, is that you're facing physical suffering. That's a direct result of your sin, and and your consequences are going to be worse than was before. So this raises the question then. Let's take a step back for a minute. And then we have to deal with this, what Jesus is saying here. Is physical suffering then, is it a direct result to personal sin? And the answer really is yes and no. In this situation, for this man, the answer is yes. Jesus is clear that there is a direct cause and effect going on here and that the sin is the cause and the result is his paralysis earlier, and then something worse that awaits him later if he does not change. The cause of the suffering was sin. Again, like I said, the cause of the suffering was sin. So he's saying, stop sinning. So something worse doesn't happen to you. Your your condition doesn't get any physically worse. We know that that there's a cause and effect. We, we know this rule of cause and effect. You know, we see it all the time. You know, you drink too much alcohol, you're going to wreck your liver, right? If you keep on smoking, you're going to char your lungs. So there's there's that going on. There's, a, there's certainly a cause and effect that we can relate to in uh, just in the way that we live our lives and what we understand uh, living in the, in, in, uh, on earth in this universe. But there's also a, a sense in where there's a general sense in which all suffering that, that goes on in the world is the result of, of sin. That all physical suffering is, is, is a result of sin sometimes. right? Sometimes God uses suffering also though to, to discipline us. Right? um in the Corinthian church for instance we, you know we read about some people who were getting sick and they were actually dying because they were taking the lord's supper unworthily you know they were using the lord's supper to get drunk uh you know to uh you know, to get to fatten themselves up, and they were, you know, pushing others aside, and they weren't coming together and communing together as the people of God should be doing, as the church. And so, what that happened was the Lord brought discipline uh, on them for their. Ph- he brought physical sickness, and he also brought on, in death. And Ananias and Sapphira in, in Acts chapter five, where it says where they are actually slain by God in an instant, they were, because they lied to Peter and to the Holy Spirit. So. Scripture does teach that there is not only a general s- sense in which we, uh, we suffer because of, of sin in general, general s- uh, terms that we experience, and that's why we experience emotional, physical, psychological breakdown, and then eventually death, but Scripture all teaches that um, in some sense, in some cases, uh, that, that uh, personal sin um, does result in um, suffering. But it's not always the case. Right? I want to make that clear as well, that it's not always the case that When we experience suffering, and when we see somebody else experience suffering, that it is a result of a personal sin. Let's listen to what Jesus has to say in John chapter 9, which we'll get to in a few weeks. Jesus says, uh, John writes this in John chapter 9. As he passed by, that's Jesus, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it was not this man that sinned or his parents, but that the work of God might be displayed in him. So, Jesus is very clear that in John chapter 9, in that circumstance, that this man's blindness was not a result of any personal sin, but instead his blindness was actually, and, and his subsequent healing was meant to open the eyes of the world and to his disciples right there, and to this man at the time, um, at the, to the majesty of Jesus Christ. And that's exactly the same thing that this man is doing, uh, that Jesus is doing for this man in John chapter five, that he's opening his eyes up to the glory of God. And Jesus is is revealing the man's sin and his his need for spiritual healing. And then Jesus is showing him, he's showing this man himself. He's showing Jesus that uh, he is a source of healing, that he is a source of life. And like we learned last week, Jesus' miraculous signs were not meant to be um, taken as ends in themselves, but instead they were meant to lead people, lead us back to faith, lead us to faith in Jesus Christ. There's one other thing I want to point out um, in this, in this uh, particular verse is that um, Jesus' warning in the immediate context was about physical suffering, but Jesus was, was also warning this man ultimately about the eternal consequences of unrepentance and the eternal consequences, uh, which is hell, which is eternal uh, condemnation. He was confronting the man's unwillingness to repent, and he was warning him that that uh, that the punishment that was waiting for him was worse than the than the than the discipline than what he was ref- that he experienced in his paralysis. This is this is a very tough word that Jesus is communicating to this man. It's tough, but it's also very gracious, right? Jesus is not content to simply heal this man and, and move on. He wants, to, he wants to heal this man from his spiritual paralysis. And that's exactly what Jesus is offering to us as well. Is Jesus calling you to stop a particular pattern of sin? Uh, is, he, is he asking you or is, he, is he commanding you to give up those things in your life that are causing you unnecessary pain and agony? You, you may even know you're wrong. You know, you know that you're living in sin, but you con- you're content to continue to soak in your sin. But is God asking you today instead, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? If so, if so, repent and turn to Jesus. And that's what he's saying. Maybe God is calling you to drop some of the superstitions that are going on in your life. You know, it's easy to pick on this man's superstition, right? Yeah, come on, really, angels are coming down; they're going to stir up the water, and the first man in gets healed, right? It's it's very easy to, to pick on that because we know that, that, that seems ridiculous to us. But what about the things that in your life that you're resting your hopes on? Yeah. What are the what's the overarching focus of your heart? What hopes and and dreams are the objects of of your attention and your affection? I'm going to tell you: if it's not God, then it's an idol, right? What's an idol, you might ask? And we, we talk about this all the time here at Kings about, about uh, um, how we are, are the heart of, of us, of human beings, are idol factors. We try we, to create anything and everything um, that's going to supplant God so that we can find our satisfaction in something other than him. Uh, Tim Keller does an excellent job in defining what the idolatry is in his book, Kind Gods. He says this, quote, "'What is an idol? "'It is anything more important to you than God.'" Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value and then I'll feel significant and secure. He goes on to say, quote, if we look to some created thing to give us meaning, hope and happiness that only God himself can give, it will eventually fail to deliver and break our hearts, end quote. Family, this is the whole reason, right? For, isn't this the whole reason for the incarnation? This is what Jesus' coming to the earth was all about, that Jesus left the splendors of heaven where from eternity past, he enjoyed perfect, loving communion with the Father and with the Holy Spirit, and he entered into creation, into his created order, his creation that had been marred and muddied by sin. And he had this one mission, right? He had this mission to save rebellious humanity, to save you and to save me from the penalty of sin, which is eternal hell. This passage is a picture of that, right? This passage is a picture of the gospel. And it shouldn't surprise us to find that Jesus is at this pool. He's among the most helpless and needing, hurting peoples of society. Isn't that us? Aren't you and I exactly that? That we were hurt and, and weak, and we are content to stew in our sins regardless of the immediate and eternal consequences. But praise be to God, right, that he came and he, and he intentionally sought us out when we had no reason to seek him out. We had no, we did, had no desire to seek him. He sought us intentionally. And on the cross, Jesus sh- shouldered the, in, the unbearable burden of sin. And on our account, He suffered as no human being had ever suffered before, physically, uh, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. He suffered God's wrath, and he removed the sin that was so completely entangled in our hearts. And that while while he was on the cross, judgment instead fell on Jesus Christ, so that by God's love and grace, we could inherit forgiveness for our sins, and we could find right relationship with God. Jesus' resurrection also guarantees our resurrection. Right? A glorified body completely healed with everlasting health. Amen? And one last thing I want to I point out before, before I close this morning. And Even after Jesus exposes the man's sin, the man doesn't heed his warning. It seems that he does not heed his warning. Instead, he, re- he returns to the Pharisees and he gives them the identity of his healer. He says, it's Jesus who healed me. And, inst- and instead, because of this, he actually plays a part in the beginning of Jesus' public persecution, it says. But Jesus, knowing this, he still showed compassion to the man anyway. And yet, we're so unlike Jesus. We don't, we don't know who, we don't know the ins and outs of people's hearts. We, don't, we can't see into the heart of a person. We don't know who's going to respond to faith in Jesus Christ. But we do, and we don't know um, who's going to respond to the gospel that, that we declare, that we live by, that we live in light on, in light of? It's God's work to save souls. But as a church, it's our mission to show mercy, to show grace to everyone. And it's our privilege, I'd say it's our privilege as God's people, as his church, to proclaim the love of God, to put on display God's glory, his beauty, his brilliance, his infinite worth, and to do that for a world that's full of people who are suffering the fatal effects of sin. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning, and we thank you for this passage, for your word in its entirety, but in this particular passage this morning that we studied, and and the privilege that we have of of having your word, that you have revealed yourself to us. You didn't leave us to ourselves and our sins, but you came to us to the earth that you created. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would... uh, uh, reveal the sin that's in our hearts that with precision you would, you would show us exactly what it is that's, that's causing a rift in our relationship with you that might be um, that needs to be dealt with that needs to be repented of so that we can live uh, in freedom from the sin that that uh, is plaguing our hearts Lord I pray that you would uh, please um, help us to repent to repent well and to also to look to you just as this, this man's face was lifted to Jesus uh, and all of our eyes are being lifted to you in this moment, and I pray, Holy Spirit, that we would exalt you, that we would see you for your majesty, we see you for your glory, and, and, uh, and bask in your love, and then it would in, uh, instill in us a heart of gratitude for the love that you've shown us, and we can reflect that to the world, and also uh, just rejoice in, in our relationship that we have with you. In Jesus' name, amen.